The following episode is sponsored by Row Gallery, Anchor, and Ballsy. Harmony, do you know anywhere I can find a Van Gogh print? Yeah, I do actually. You could check out Row Gallery. They have artworks in every style for every budget. Over 30,000 original vintage prints, paintings, photos, and sculptures. Wait, so do they have Monet? Oh yeah, and Morisot, who, by the way, was one of the first woman impressionists. That's super cool, but do they have modern artists too? Oh yeah, they have Warhol, Lichtenstein, whose name I can never say, and even Valerie Hurd. I, fun fact, interviewed her once. That's an expansive collection. It is. You can find Row Gallery at rowgallery.com, or if you're near New York, they're located in the best borough, Queens, at 47-1536 Street in Long Island City. And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, and welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Yay! And we're talking <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about Imago, the third and final book in the Exogenesis series, or Lilith's Brood by Octavia Butler. Woo! Woo! This book was so good. Yes, this entire series was really good. How did you feel about this book though? Because I feel like this book was way different than the others. Yeah, it did not go any direction I thought it would. And honestly, at first, I was mad about it because I wanted to kind of continue following the trajectory of the first two books with like the whole Mars Colony thing and like the Resisters thing. But when I I saw after the first part what the new trajectory of the book was so essentially the way she ended up structuring this trilogy was that in the first novel we follow a female character in the second novel we follow a male character and then in the third novel we follow an uloi character and when i saw how that was playing out i got really into it and from a purely enjoyment standpoint this was my favorite novel in the series really okay i don't know if it was my favorite from an enjoyment standpoint i think i actually enjoyed the other two books more but this was like still really entertaining and I felt like it had more entertainment value if that makes sense like I enjoyed the others more but this felt like I was almost watching a movie and very much more so than the other books like I was in a different world yeah this I think felt the most sci-fi of all of them which is interesting because this is the only book that we aren't exploring a new world we're we're on the new earth the entire time but just given the character's perspective and everything it feels very different which is an interesting thing i think for me i liked this book the most because our main character was so flawed but i loved it anyways yeah it being our character (laughs) gender not the book i realized that the way that sentence was constructed could have been ambiguous but it was just so flawed and felt so human and i could connect with it so much because of its flaws that i think for me 
that's what worked the most. I felt more emotionally distanced, I think, from Lilith and from Akeen. Really? Okay. Well, before we get into that, let's try. We Neither of us wrote a summary for this book because we're, <laughs> we can't handle that shit in our lives. But let's try and tag team a summary here. So, Sounds good. Okay, good, good. Yeah. So this book follows Joda. Is that how you say their name? Its name? Joda or Jodas or something like that. Yes, it follows somebody named Joda or Jodas. And this is a character who is supposed to turn into a male. It is a human-born Uncali or human construct child. And as we've kind of already learned in the past two books, children of the Uncali and constructs aren't really given their gender until they go through their first metamorphosis. So this one is supposed to turn into a male. And instead, and we kind of see it right before its first metamorphosis, and it's talking about how it doesn't really want to, like, be with any of the parents, and it's going through something very different than the other Uncali construct children, and it's just acting weird. And it really feels the most drawn to Nikanj, who, as we know before, is the Uloi character in Lilith's family. So... This this one this one is about this kid who turns into an Uloi and the world essentially freaks out. Like all the Onkali freak out. And I think it's kind of I mean not the first time, but it's like one of the first times from my perspective where we see it outright, like true Onkali prejudice. Yeah. Yeah. It was very human feeling, like how this book defines humans anyway. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I thought that too. I thought that we saw a lot of, especially the constructs acting very human throughout this entire book. But I agree with you. It was, there was such a panic between, because in the last book, Akin was the first human, who human construct that was born male, but he was planned. Mm-hmm. The problem here was that Joda was unplanned to be an Uloi. And that was what really just struck prejudice and panic because Uloi have the power to wreak so much damage if they don't learn how to control it and no one knew how the human aspect of it was going to kind of change their Uloi powers so essentially we follow in this book Joda just kind of and it's other sibling who also turns out to accidentally be an Uloi as they're just trying to come into themselves, figure out who they are, figure out how to be an Uloi and also a human simultaneously. And really, weirdly enough, it ends up being a love story because they all, like, their whole thing is that they biologically need human mates in a way that even the other Onkali Uloi don't. So we're essentially just following these characters as they're doing everything they can to find mates and ultimately end up stumbling upon a colony of humans that have somehow escaped Onkali notice that are normal quote-unquote humans from the time of pre-war. They, they're they fertile. They don't need an Uloi to reproduce. And because of that, some weird fucking things are happening to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's real, real, real weird. There's a lot of incest in this book. There's a lot of incest in this book. That's true. Yeah. We'll get there. Yeah, but I wonder if that's why it feels more sci-fi to us, because up until, well, we've always had non-binary people in our society, but, like, in the American society that Maggie and I live in, it's very much presented, even though non-binary people are coming 
up and like speaking out and even though their existence is now being acknowledged like we live in a very very binary world and maybe because we're dealing with an uloi who is completely sexless and yeah it just like because it's just such a completely different form of being than a human even though it's very human-like it feels definitely way more sci-fi than even like following Akeen, who was also a construct felt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. also a lot more sex in this book than the other books. Like this is very much a sexy book. It's a love story. Like <laughs> at its core, it's simultaneously like a love story and a coming of age story. So like lust is at the center of both of those, <laughs> both of those activities. Yeah. I, before finishing this book, I was looking up online to see what other people thought the Oncali would look like. And I got a lot of weird images from DeviantArt, and they were, like, kind of humanoid. So, like, I had looked up Jedi or something, the first Oncali species that we meet. And then these images were just, like, very human-like. And maybe they were thinking more of constructs, but, like, now I feel... Like, I understand if there is a fandom community for this book that writes, like, sexy fan fiction and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's that level of sexy. And it's interesting, too, because it's not, right, like, no one is physically having sex, so it's not explicit in that way. But, like, their neurochemical bond is just so intense that, like, the way they describe things, sometimes even in situations that aren't overtly sexual just feels very sexual but i think yeah. that also plays into the fact that for most of this novel joda is a sub-adult which i think in the first novel we likened more to being a kid than the own society would describe it as being because yeah. they're not a kid but they're also not like a teenager adolescent like they would be if they would be human they really genuinely are adults that just aren't able to reproduce yet and are not in control of their hormones so it's like a very weird yes not a child but no also still not fully adult sort of situation which reminds me a lot of teenagers yeah but also we can reproduce huh huh but we can reproduce when we're teenagers or like even college students yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all and, level of 40. Yeah, it was just very, it was very interesting to read about. Yeah, yeah. It it was, yeah. And and we're also dealing, I, I don't know where this goes, but in the back, back of what Maggie said, we're also dealing with a much hornier character than we were with the other two novels, which could also account for why this novel feels so much more sexual and that's also part of why the uloi are dangerous because they're all like they're much less even than akin who we did see kind of like lose control of himself like they are much less stable they're much more what we would like into being hormonal and very very horny yeah and it's especially bad for joda because it's part human so, whereas for Nika in the first book, when we first meet it, as a sub-adult, it's curious about Lilith, but it isn't able to feel, like, sexual attraction until it's an adult adult. But for Joda, because it's part human, it's, like, 
feeling all that stuff as a seven. <laughs> and therefore, even more unable to contain itself. I don't know why we're even really talking about this, but it's just such a prevalent thread throughout this whole story. Which I do think is interesting, though, because Joda is the first Onkali that we ever see have any kind of relationship with human mm-hmm. or other Onkali that isn't just its mates. Yeah, yeah, because Lilith has multiple mates, and we are ta- that's talked about. And Akeem, we don't really ever get to meet his real mates. So yeah, you're right. I also thought that this book was interesting because Maggie and I have kind of, you know, griped before about the lack of queer representation in this novel, even though there are non-binary beings. And that's still true, but it still feels a lot more queer, especially because Joda can transform itself into a being that most, like, I don't know, is is most prevalent. I, it just feels more queer for some reason. And maybe that's because it is an actual non-binary being having sexual feelings for another person. Well, one of Joda's things that makes it different than the other Uloi is that it can physically transform itself to be most appealing to its mates. So ultimately, it ends up with a male and female mate named Tomas. And- is it Josea? Is that no, how you would pronounce it? Because it's, it's a play on Jesus, so I don't know how to <laughs> pronounce it. It's, it's like, no, literally, it's like Jesus with an A. That's why they make the comment about God. So I don't know how to okay. pronounce it. They're Spanish-speaking. We might be able to look this up. This might be a real name. It is a real name, definitely. <laughs> I just don't know how to pronounce it. The following pronunciation is brought to you by pronouncenames.com. Jesusa. Jesusa. Okay. Jesusa. That makes a lot of sense. So, so I guess I'll just re-say that. So, Joda ends up with a male and female mate named Toma and Jesusa, who are brother and sister. Um, when it is kind of seducing Jesusa, it looks more male. And when it is seducing Tomas, it looks more female. And that's true of the other sexual interactions we see it have with other humans throughout the novel as well. It physically transforms to appear more male or female depending on what is like what is happening and who it is trying to kind of like please have these relationships with yeah so i think that's part of the reason it feels more queer and i think the other reason it feels more queer is that jesusa and joda have like they're a bonded pair right because they end up all being mated but they have a much more contentious relationship joda had to work really hard to convince jesusa that like this was the way to go and for tomas tomas fell in love with joda just as hard as joda did the other thing like tomas says multiple times i'm never going to let you go like you are not allowed to leave me they are my one true pair I fucking love them. But like, I think that that helps make it more, feel more queer, especially because Tomas doesn't have, I would say, the same sort of sexuality crisis that Tino or Joseph has. Yeah. Which, in the context of the other two books, I think was fair and made sense. But I loved in this novel the fact that Tomas doesn't have that and is just like automatically all in, like, yeah, let's go. I, I love you, you know? So. A technical thing. Like, with that, do you think that's because Jodas is a construct and, as we learn later in the novel, probably smells a lot better to humans? Or do we think that's because Tomas is a younger human, which we also kind of didn't talk about yet? The fact that apparently there is a whole colony of humans that have been, like, 
fucking each other even though they're related because they accidentally let a 15 year old the uncle accidentally let a 15 year old go and she wasn't sterilized so now they've like been able to breed new humans which was not a thing on earth before it was just constructs and old humans from before the war i don't know i think it was interesting though because it's implied at the end of the novel when they have to go back to human colony and they end up getting stuck there, that there are multiple same-sex relationships that happen. People are forced to marry because they're trying to keep breeding and they're trying to keep going, which is actually really problematic because I'm sure as you can all follow the logic, because there was one person who got pregnant and had the ability to have kids. Like This is all one sort of very incestuous inbred community in that sense. And it's been enough generations now where for them mentally, it doesn't feel that way. But genetically, they're all very closely related. So because they're trying to keep this tradition, I guess, alive, keep their village alive, having control over their own fertility, they're all forced into heterosexual relationships. So I think part of it is the fact that even though it's not accepted as like a husband wife thing for life in their village clearly like they they talk about even though it's briefly the fact that there are other same-sex relationships happening do they say that because i thought i picked that up too there was like a smile do, do we have the text passage can we look at that because yeah it, it was towards the end of the novel they were talking about the places where lovers meet and yeah. it wasn't it wasn't i should say it wasn't explicit it wasn't explicit but it was heavily implied at the very least um, um ba, 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 ba. oh i found a cute quote <laughs> you love Thomas. i really love Thomas and Jonas' relationship there so i was thinking cute i thought it was kind of sad though because Tomas only part of the reason why Tomas accepts so easily is because his life before that was just awful and this is like the only yeah what's so yeah, sad this is the only out yeah. for him okay i found it page 700 that will get you a man jesusa says maybe several men but women don't hunt what do females do, I asked. What might bring them out away from the protection of the settlement? Jesusa and Tomas look at each other and Tomas grinned. They meet, he said. Meet? I repeated, uncomprehending. The elders tell us who we must marry, he said, but they can't tell us who we must love. Yeah, okay, because the females are the ones meeting. That's what I was thinking too, okay. So there is definitely implied lesbianism, at least. <laughs> yeah so i think that in that sense it potentially makes tomas more open to the to the idea of loving whoever although i do think that you're right and there is a sadness about it because tomas never had the chance for love for real love in his village at least romantically because even though he was going to be married off and there was someone who seemed to really like him for him he did not feel the same way about her and his options were very limited because this whole village is suffering from a disease a genetic disease that covers them with tumors and for Tomas specifically he had it really he had a very severe version of the disease where he was slowly going deaf and blind and his life was so miserable he tried to take his own life multiple yeah. times so you're right in the sense that it was sad 
But I think that I was ultimately happy for him that he was able to escape that at least. Yeah. Yeah. Tomas. He's such a little bean. He's a little bean. Jesusa, is that how we decide to say her name? Yes. Mm -hmm. She is not a bean. She is like Lilith 2.0 plus more teeth. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Jesusa is... There's there's a part where Joda really makes both Tomas and Jesusa mad. Because Joda, and one of the things that I think makes it a very flawed character, Joda does not tell them that once they stay with it through metamorphosis, that they will not be able to leave it, that the, the, the choice is taken away. So there's a weird thing that happens between the three of them where at first they're kind of, there kind of is a choice for them, but there's kind of not a choice because Joda is just so zeroed in on the two of them. But it does ask multiple times for them to stay. But when Jesusa finds out that they don't have the choice anymore, even though she probably would have chosen to stay, she is understandably very angry. And Tomas is too. But it's... Joda and Tomas are talking about it later and Tomas goes if she wasn't so good at punishing you I would have to figure out how to do it myself because Tomas is like Tomas doesn't actually mind so it was just so but he minds that you know he heard it he minds that she minds yeah Yeah. he's he's angry for her but Jesusa is the one who is she is the knife in this relationship Mm -hmm. you know like she she is aware that she is a weapon and she is willing to punish Joda, not in like an emotionally abusive way, but is like willing to put down her foot and say when Joda does things that she does not like or appreciate or approve of, even though ultimately it ends up causing physical pain to her as well because of this weird biochemical connection they have. Yeah. So let's talk about the fact that Joda doesn't tell you know, Tomas and Jesusa about the fact that they are bound to it. Yeah, this was difficult to read. Yeah, like it does, it takes away their consent. And it's also interesting because there's actually a passage in this one, this this book, where it talks about how Onkolis view consent differently because humans' bodies tell them everything they need to know and they kind of treat each other like that because they're able to read everything. Yeah. And and humans have to have consent through, like, their mouths. The Onkalis don't believe that because they're able to see the full picture. Yeah. And that was... But yeah, I don't know. It takes away their consent, and it does it knowingly, and it, like, makes its family kind of do it. And even Nikanj is like, dude, or, you know, dude in the gender-neutral way, you can't do that. <laughs> Which is interesting, because the like, initial passage was Joda's thought about the fact that Nika will make a decision for it. And it says on page 553, it, in this case, it being Nikanj, it meant that as long as I was not more miserable alone with the family than it believed I would be if I were cut off from the family and sent to the ship. Humans tended to misunderstand Uloi when Uloi said things like that. Humans thought the Uloi were promising that they would do nothing until the humans said that they had changed their minds, told the Uloi with their mouths in words. But the Uloi perceived all that a living being said, all words, all gestures, and a vast array of other internal and external bodily responses. Uloi absorbed everything and acted accordingly to whatever consensus they discovered. Thus, Uloi treated individuals as they treated groups of beings. They sought a consensus. 
If there was none, it meant the being was confused, ignorant, frightened, or in some other way not yet able to see its own best interests. The Uloi gave information and perhaps, and perhaps calmness until they could perceive a consensus. Then they acted. So it's almost democratic the way that it's presented in that. Because that's how the Uloi, like the whole Ankali, when they're making decisions, they all have to have a consensus for something. Which is a weird, very democratic system that humans have never been able to do. But it also, to me... That passage specifically made me really uncomfortable because to me it harkens so specifically back to rape culture and yeah, being like, well, I saw that you wanted it, you know? Um, yeah. So. I think it was meant oh, to. Oh, yeah, no. I, it was supposed to be uncomfortable. I think it was supposed to do that thing. I just wanted to point it out explicitly that that was what was happening no it's definitely not cool especially because you can't actually read and this is also talked about a lot throughout the series humans believe that uloi or even onkali could read their minds but especially uloi because they're able to perceive so much and a lot of the times uloi are right but they can't actually read your mind and they're not able to predict everything and they are wrong we saw that especially in the second book i would say we see it less so in this book Mm -hmm. a little bit at least but it is a theme in the series that ule are not infallible yeah yeah exactly and i think the second part of that passage that you just read where it's kind of being compared to the the creature can't like, doesn't know its own best interests, that very much kind of, like, reduces whatever creature that you're dealing with to an animal or a child, which is another huge fear that humans have from Uncali, is that they, like, they treat them sometimes like animals or children. Something I thought that was interesting about Joda's choice to not tell Tomas and Jesusa about this was the fact that it knew it was wrong the entire time and it knew that it would be angry and I think a reason that I was I was upset with Joda during this whole time and I was frustrated with Joda this whole time but I empathized with it pretty deeply because it was not coming necessarily from a place of malice or from a place of apathy like for a lot of the other Onkali it was coming from a place of self-interest and self-centeredness and, like, deep terror. Yeah. And it was that last bit for me that made the first two aspects of, of the situation feel more empathetic. Mm-hmm. I still think it did the wrong thing. Yeah. Everyone thinks it did the wrong thing. But I wasn't angry with Joda like I was angry with Ninkaj in the first book because of that. Really? I think I was more angry at Joda because Joda understood better humans you know it had the opportunity to live with humans it had human parents whereas Nikanj really was doing what its entire species had told it to do and was still learning I think I was less angry at Joda because to me it felt so human to be so scared that you make a decision that's wrong for others based on your own self-interests that I could better understand where it was coming from as a fellow human than where Ninkanj was coming from in the first book. 
if that makes sense. Joda's decision just read so much more human to me and its terror read as so human to me that while I disagreed deep in my marrow, I think I could, I just could understand its mental position more. I understand. I think for me, as someone that knows a lot of people that have done pretty horrible things and, you know, still loves those people, I think that, like, the understanding part didn't make me feel any more sympathetic towards it. Like, logically and therefore then emotionally, I still empathize more with Nikanj because Nikanj didn't have all of the information it needed. and. Joda did. Yeah, I think what frustrated me the most about Joda, or I guess the second most, right, because I was angry for Tomas and Jesusa. But the other thing that upset me was that it it put Lilith and Tino in such an awkward and terrible position. Yeah, that was so shitty to Lilith, and it knew. (laughs) Sorry. It knew. It knew. I don't know. I The whole thing just reminded me of, like, very typical to a certain extent kid to parent relationships yeah you know where it was like I felt really bad for Lilith and Tino but also I think sometimes to a certain extent that's just what it means to have kids is that your kids are gonna put you in a really fucking shitty position at some point and you kind of just have to make whatever call you make you know but something I did appreciate because of that was that Lilith was a lot more a part of this book than she was in the last book and I like seeing her come back me too. She's a compelling character. And I like the parallels between her and Jesusa. And I really appreciated that they were able to form a relationship because they are the only two human women. I mean, like Lilith probably had the opportunity to interact with human woman and Lo, but because she is now a part of the Ancali family, Ancali family is like a much deeper intimate bond. And now that she has a family member that's like a human woman... It just, like, it was nice solidarity. And the book did kind of tie itself up at towards the end with, like, a nice little happy ending. But it made sure to add that, because Jesus, as we mentioned before, was really mad at Lilith because... For a long time. Yeah, because Lilith kept the secret for Joda. But, like, they reconciled and they touched each other. And that was, like, that was a nice little highlight and nod towards the importance of, you know, girls sticking together. Yeah, and it was... I think it is important to mention that Lilith has multiple other children who are mated in this story. So it is implied, I think, that she does have other human female family members. But this is just oh, the first okay. time that we've seen, like, that relationship build. Yeah. And I think it was different in this time because this is the first time someone's mated with a human female. Like, it, it brought Lilith back to the first book and where she was in that same mental place. Because all of the sudden she felt like she was betraying her species over and over again because she knew ultimately that all of this was going to lead to Onkali going to this village and yeah. doing what he had done to the rest of humanity. Yeah, yeah. Though, okay, in terms of like having other female members, so we see Akeen as the first male that Lilith is born to, and it's canon in this book that male constructs wander. And they're not a part of family units. So I wonder if there would have been any human females aside from like the ones that are outside of the family for her to interact with. Because there are no male, like the male humans wander. 
Oh, I suppose that's true. And since this is the first Uloi, I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't explain enough. I had taken it that there might have been, but that they would have been more related to like other families in Low. Yeah. Because Lilith and Tino at this point also, I think it's worth saying, have had a lot of fucking kids. <laughs> They've lived yeah. for a really long time. Hundreds and hundreds of years. <laughs> yeah. And the, Joda is one of many, <laughs> shall we say. The youngest. It's a lot of breeding. It's a lot yeah. of kids. That part, like, kind of confounds me. Like, no, yeah, but I mean, have lots of kids, but that's a lot of kids. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, also, it's over hundreds and hundreds of years, so it's not like spending your entire, like, 30s just popping out kids as a comparison, you know? Yeah, but how do you love and take care of all those goddamn kids? Well, most of them are adults. Uh, That was something I was really impressed with, though, was that Lilith and Tino, the way Butler crafts this family, all of the children get individualized love and attention, even though there's a butt fucking a million of them. So, like, <laughs> I was they're repopulating. Just, yeah, they're repopulating, man. I was, but I was impressed with that. Not in, you know, like it was just, I thought yeah. she really crafted that aspect of the story super well. And to be fair, we should also. Uh, put the Uloi parent or the Onkali parents in there as well. They're a five-person yeah. parent family unit as parents, Which makes it easier. <laughs> I was gonna say that probably also helps with having a million children to have five parents in a family unit. You know, there's literally a village. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and then there's an actual village as well to help take care of all of the children. So, wow. Okay, what were we talking about? Oh, <laughs> uh, we were talking about the terrible position Joda put Lilith in, but the fact that we were ultimately happy to see more of Lilith and to see her relationship with Jesusa develop. Yeah, okay. So, towards the end, we also see that there are other humans who are resistors and who have been told to demonize on Kali their entire lives. And... Joda also disarms all of them, and it doesn't take much. It's just, like, it tells them essentially what the Onkali have been telling them, but this time it's believed. And so I'm wondering if that's partially circumstance, because these humans, more than the other humans, really do live destitute lives. They suffer. They suffer quite a bit because they all have genetic disabilities because they of the inbreeding, essentially. Um and they don't have any sort of health care to help or any sort of way to, like, mitigate some of the pain that they're feeling physically. So <laughs> I, I don't know, though. Like, it just seemed kind of unrealistic. Or if this really was all just because the Uncali, the, the constructs smell better. Like, what was that? I think it was the fact that the constructs are, to me, it kind of made sense. I agree with you that it was one of the more unrealistic parts of this novel. As far as, like, a craft standpoint, I think that whole section could have arguably taken up more of the book. I would imagine that the reason Butler didn't do it was because it would have just been too similar to Joaquin's story. But I think what made sense to me was that the gospel that they were being preached in this village, and I think it's important to mention the fact that it was gospel. They were... following very closely an adapted version of Christianity to include the Onkali as the literal devil. And part of what was preached as part of this was that 
any children created as part of this would be monsters. Oh, but these children were pretty. Not They were pretty and they were very human-like in a lot of ways, even though they didn't necessarily look totally human. And they essentially were just proof that everything they had been told their entire lives that was supposedly justified the suffering wasn't true. And Mm. also, they thought for a long time that the Onkali raped the first mother. And that wasn't what happened. Oh, I didn't pick up on that part. Yeah, they They were humans. They were humans. And so I think that between finding out the fact that two of those fundamental pillars of the reason you live the way that you do aren't true, I could I could see in those circumstances that like and they're providing free health care to end the suffering on top of that, like I could see how those circumstances come together to change minds pretty quickly. I'm not going to lie to you. I do think Bernie Sanders is winning. (laughs) Yeah. Like I do think the timeline was ultimately unrealistic, but I could see all of those elements coming together to make a pretty compelling case, especially because ultimately it wasn't just Joda. It was also, Mm. how are we pronouncing it? Aor. It was also Aor, (laughs) which is, uh, Joda's other accidental Uloi sibling, it was also there. And then all of the rest of the Onkali family of, like, theirs came, and they were all like, holy fuck, it really just isn't the way we thought it would be. Something I thought was compelling and interesting and different about these characters than others in the past was the fact that Joda and Aeor are much less disgusted, interestingly, by violence than Nikanj and the other Onkali Uloi were. Oh, okay. I mean, we kind of see them evolve. They evolve quicker. Because in the beginning, in the beginning, our first interacted, uh, interaction with Jodas, it, like, does not understand humans. It's, like, kind of looking down upon humans. It's telling humans that, you know, the Mars colony isn't the best thing for them because they're going to go ahead and kill themselves anyway. And then later, when I Ior is... A part of the story that we have not told you about yet is that Ior goes on a journey with Jodas and Jodas's mates to go find its own mates because it needs mates or it, like, turns into a blob, essentially. It's going to die, literally, if it doesn't get mates. Yes, it's going to die, literally, if it doesn't get mates. But before it dies, it turns into a blob, which is part of its dying. But anyway, so <laughs> the, it's on this journey with uh, Jodas and its mates and... Ior is like, why are you letting them kill fish? And it's completely disgusted by this violence that humans are doing. But it adapts to the violence. Because they both discuss it. And Jodas is like, well, you just need to kind of let humans be humans. Yeah. You just need to let your needs be themselves. But it, good, good relationship advice. Yeah, but it was interesting <laughs> because then it also adapted that. And I thought it was specifically interesting because when they're going in to this village, they are very scared that every one of them is in a position to be shot and killed, essentially except for Jodas, because Aeor is so weak that a bullet really could kill it, even though it normally wouldn't. And all of the human mates that they've gathered at this point, because at this point there are four of them, are just <laughs> humans, you know? Like, they they have no defenses. And Jodas is so 
distraught by this that it kind of without remorse is like if you have to sting them if you have to kill them do it like this family unit yeah. that we have right here is more important which is distinctly at odds odds with Nikanj at the beginning of the book because Nikanj at the beginning of the book says something similar when they're leaving low because they have to all go on this journey to figure out who these Uloi kids are and what they're gonna actually be (laughs) lots of journeying in, in these three books but Nikanj says those words and means it but is visibly disgusted feels revulsion around the idea like it's willing Mm -hmm. to do it for the sake of its family but really doesn't want to in a different way than jodas does at the end so i thought that parallel was super intriguing yeah jodas at the end is more like lilith because lilith also says something similar to nikanj and it's it's not as much of a disgusting thing, a disgusted thing. It's a fear. Like, she fears for her family, and that's what Jodas is doing. Mm-hmm. It's fearing for its family. Yeah. Takes after its mother. It does. One of its mothers. <laughs> oh, you mentioned the Mars colony for a second. So going to some, I guess, larger thoughts of the book. How do you feel about the fact that we never found out how the Mars colony ended and, like, whether humans will ultimately destroy themselves? I was okay with it from a reader perspective and as a Harmony in this point in time. I don't know if Harmony tomorrow will feel differently. I, like, kind of just don't care because, I don't know. I mean, I feel like we're constantly on the brink of destruction, humans. Humans in this day and age. I was much more invested in where the story ultimately took us, which was how to overcome differences and, like, the newer generation bringing everyone together. That's a story I care more about. (laughs) I think it is for me, too. I think I just found it interesting because we spent so much time in the second book building up the Mars colony. And even in this one, it comes up that the Onkali, at the end of the day, still believe that the humans are going to destroy themselves. That I did feel, I think, a small hole not getting some resolution with that. I think part of that, though, is the fact that none of the characters from book two ended up in book three. Akeen wasn't there. He was mentioned briefly because, like, the Mars colony keeps coming up. But he wasn't there. Tate and Gabe weren't there. Like, I think that was the part where I felt more of a lack of resolution than like knowing what who was right at the end but i agree with you that the direction the story ultimately took was a appropriately more hopeful than it would have if it had followed the mars colony (laughs) and b you're right i think the moral of this story if there is one is about overcoming differences and being brought together in a way that I feel like really resonates with me in our current political time. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And from a story standpoint, like, I also did feel the Akeen-shaped hole in this novel. But I think that Akeen's story was maybe meant to and necessary to show the evolution towards, like, how we come together. Because Akeen was doing, like, the compromise thing. Like, okay, these people don't want anything to do with us. I'm going to speak for these people, even though they've treated me awfully. And then by Akeen doing that, it allowed the Onkali to all like understand humans better, which led to his younger siblings being able to actually, you know, like come together in a real way with humans, have humans who willingly love them. Yeah. And something that I think 
saddens me but is realistic about this book is that this process takes hundreds of years and generations. It doesn't just get fixed overnight with one set of people, which I think is difficult to contend with. But if we look at our own history is true, you know, like it's it's what's happening. And I hope that as humans right now, we're getting to be in the Imago phase of things. But there is part of me that's worried that we're still in adulthood rights, you know? We are definitely, at least, no, you know what? Kind of all over, we're still in adulthood, right? I know. I was going to be like, at least here in the U.S. And then I was like, "Mm, no, no, everywhere. Everywhere we're still in adulthood rights. Yeah. (laughs) I know you're right. Um, I just want to be hopeful. Well, yeah, maybe our children. (laughs) I don't know. I think Gen Z is out here doing the Lord's work on that front. I also believe you but and i know you also have siblings who are gen z's but i keep getting these snapchats from my little brother and i love him so much but he's 12 and like the things he's just like not woke not woke at all interesting (laughs) um yeah anyway (laughs) one of the things i also wanted to talk about this is a huge turn is the monster element that plays into this book briefly i thought that was really interesting to the sci-fi thing so before before its second metamorphosis, Jodas is a animal-like thing in the woods because it adapts to its like it adapts to how it's feeling kind of and also to its environment and it's alone. So it's turned into like a scaly animal thing and has claws. And this is before it meets Tomas and Jesusa and that's actually how it meets Tomas and Jesusa cuz it's and then them once- through the woods. Yeah, that, like, felt so monster movie to me. I have, like, a brief passage for it. I think it was 6.30. Here it is. It goes as follows. Hey, Maggie, what are you getting DD for Valentine's Day? You know, I was actually thinking about getting him the Your Incredibles heart box from Ballsy. Ballsy? Yeah, Ballsy. It's a men's grooming company specifically for balls. Their products are made in the U.S. that are free of parabens, sulfates, and synthetic dyes. They're made with essential oils and plant extracts. Wait, so this company combats smelly balls? Yeah, they have products like ball wash and sack spray, but they also carry products like good head shampoo and conditioner. The Your Incredibles Heart Box includes three nut rub solid colognes and a limited edition V-Day only scent, Drifts and Dunes conditioner i've been trying to get matt to buy that forever how can i get some well the your incredible's heart box is only 35 dollars, and if you use the code rebel 20 you can get 20 percent off wait so if i or any of our listeners use the code rebel 20 i can get 20 percent off of three nut rub solid colognes and the limited edition v-day only scent drift and dunes yeah Dude, Matt's going to love this. This episode is sponsored by Ballsy. To take advantage of the Your Incredibles Heart Box, go to ballwash.com and use the coupon code REBEL20 for 20% off your order. That's ballwash.com and the coupon code is REBEL20. followed them, the more I wanted them, and the more unlikely it seemed that I would ever mate with them. 
After four days, I couldn't stand it any longer. I just joined them. If I could not have them as mates permanently, I could enjoy them for a while. They had caught no fish that night. They had found wild figs and eaten them, but I doubted that these had satisfied them. I had found nuts and fruit for them and root stalks that could be roasted and eaten. I wrapped all this in a crude basket I had woven of thin lianas and lined with large leaves. I could only do this by biting through the lianas in a way that would have disturbed the resistors, so I was glad that they could not see me. A resistor had said to me years before that we constructs in Onkali were supposed to be superior beings, but we insisted on acting like animals. Oddly, both ideas seemed to disturb him. Anyway, it, like, emerges from the trees with this thing of fruits, and yeah, it's, like, crazy. It's crazy. It's stalking them. It's literally a monster when they find it, and then it stalks them through the woods for days. Four days. It's like Bigfoot. It is, and honestly, I think for me, the most unrealistic part of this book is, as much as Tomas and Joda are my OTP, the love at first sight between the two of them is so intense, because directly on the next page, (laughs) what happens is, from the moment I said my name, he was never afraid. Like, Tomas was just ready for Joda. And it's so cute, but it's also, like, that part to me is so unrealistic. Because I was reading that part, and I was like, Joda! Like, when I was saying before, the part of the reason that I found it to be such a more compelling character because it was so flawed, I actively hated Jonas in the middle of the night. I was, like, so creeped out. Like, what the fuck are you doing? I was not into it. And then I saw the way things developed and we were back on good terms again. And then it didn't tell the two of them about the fact that it was stuck with it. And like, and then we hated it again. And then we hated it a little (laughs) again, even though we could empathize with it. But like that, I guess for me is what I meant about the flawed human character aspect of it. But like, it didn't remind me necessarily of a monster sort of Bigfoot. It reminded me very much of just like a human male stalker, you know? Like you on Netflix. I have not seen or read that, but I I think, yes. <laughs> it reminded me of you on Netflix, and it reminded me of the Bigfoot, because it is described as being just like a creature in the woods and not looking like an uncolly. There's a lot of emphasis placed on that before Tomas and Jesusa find it. It was a frog and for a while. It was sad. It so was it like a frog. Yeah, it, like, turned into a frog, and it grew scales, and then it had, like, a snout, and there was, like, all these things that were happening to it, but I thought that was really interesting, because this is, like, my first time ever reading a true sci-fi book. I'm sure they're not all this good, (laughs) but this is my first time reading a true sci-fi book that's not just, like, you know, a dystopian novel, and this is an element that I know is played out a lot within the horror genre, and also, therefore, the sci-fi genre, and, like, the concept of the monster is a weirdly sexualized one and so I found that like just the direct it it was just very much like this is a monster and this is a monster who has sexual desires and I was wondering what that said from a storytelling standpoint I guess I don't even know (laughs) um, full disclosure y'all I finished this book approximately an hour and a half ago so I'm really still in the throes of my emotional reaction (laughs) I'm, I don't know, honestly, like it, it struck me also as being important, even as I was completely infuriated, but I don't think I've had enough time to download to really answer that question in an intelligent way. (laughs) I understand. I've read that part like 
two days ago or something, and I still haven't really, you know, intelligently found a way to figure out what's going on. I might ask somebody who knows more about monster stuff than I do. Maybe we should bring <laughs> bring Amaris back for just for just a second. Hello, explain yes. the sexual monster. Um, <laughs> something that I do think is worth mentioning though on that front is that when it meets them it is a monster but by the time it comes back it all it looks fully humanoid again um yeah because again it's it's found people that it it wants sexually romantically and therefore wants to please them so becomes humanoid so i think that's also something that's interesting is that the more humanoid it gets the more sexually desirous and intense and like romantic it gets as well yeah I would say that is true, yes. Which is strange, too, because... I mean, it's not strange, but it's interesting because we do see other Uloi relationships. We see Lilith and Nikanj's relationship. And, you know, even Nikanj and Tino's relationship. And that's a sexual relationship, but they aren't physically... Or they weren't initially physically attracted to the way Nikanj looked. And so, I don't know. I think that is slightly more compelling because they had to overcome that. So maybe, yeah, maybe that's part, I don't know. It's it's stated that all Uloi are seductive to humans. Like, humans can't help but be attracted to them. Or they get over being terrified, though. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, maybe the fact that that the constructs are also physically attractive, like, does help speed that along. Um, I want to talk about the fact that, what did we decide its name was? Aor? Mm-hmm. Aor. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the fact that Aor almost dies because it doesn't have mates and what we think about that. Like, it's great that Uloi loves so deeply and it's great that the Ankali are such like a family bonded community, but it really kind of disturbs me that other than Ankali male, we can't see any of these beings being able to be alone, especially not the Uloi. Like, it sucks. If you can't find mates, then you're just like, you're di- you're dead. I think that relates to a question that I also had, which was that this book talks explicitly about the fact that these Uloi are drugs to whoever their mate is, and they all become physically addicted to each other. And mm-hmm. ultimately, this is illustrated as being a positive thing in the novel because they all need each other to survive, but in the real world, it does not translate that way. So I, those two things in my head seem very closely linked. Do you mean like, so in the real world, we do have some sort of addiction. Like we get lovesick sometimes when our partners leave us. And like our, our brains do have, you know, certain hormones that go off when we touch our partners and stuff like that. So is that what you're talking about? Yeah, but also just the fact that in the real world being so dependent on someone that you are addicted to them mm-hmm. is not a positive thing in the same way that it's depicted as being in this novel. Yes. It's weird too, because sometimes the way that the relationships in this novel, like the Uncali family relationships work is really beautiful. And it does teach us kind of a lot about relationships. Like the fact that you have to accept each other's differences but yeah, the addiction thing was really hard for me to contend with, and I don't know how to read it. 
to me, it has always read as coercion, and it still reads as coercion, even after the beautiful ending that this novel gave us. Yeah, it's just really difficult to... You know, it's interesting that you bring up coercion here, because I think that's also part of the fact that Aeor almost dies. Like, even if there wasn't a biochemical thing involved... you can use emotional states like that to coerce people as well into feeling how you want them to about you. Um, yep. So really, no matter what way you slice and dice it, all of these relationships are coerced. I mean, I don't know if Iori's relationship between its mates was, but it kind of is because... It happened real fast. <laughs> It did, but it also, so did the entire ending of the book. So, like, it was presented to me. I kind of read it as Aeor went in there and was like, hey, I can give you a better life. But just so you know, you're going to be mated to me for life. And they were like, oh, you're fixing us. Sure. And then they all. Again, (laughs) yeah. What we wouldn't do for free healthcare. (laughs) You know, it's interesting, though, because it also. It also, to me, makes me wonder about appropriate boundaries within a family because mm-hmm. because of that healthcare issue. And I feel like as kids, for the most part, we're very dependent on our parents for healthcare. And, you know, they have, except for in specific, you know, legal circumstances, they have the ability to make all of your healthcare decisions for you, even if you as an autonomous being disagree with them. Um yeah. Until you're 16. Yeah. I think sometimes it's even older, depending on the state that you're in. I think federally, under Obamacare, although this may have changed since we have now changed, you know, the Health Care Act to, like, the American mm-hmm. Health Care Act or whatever it's called, it was supposed to be 16. Some states might have had provisions against it that they were allowed to keep, but federally, I believe it was supposed to be 16. Yeah. But I can fact check that later and tell you all. Yeah. I just, it just really <laughs> makes me think about what what it means to have, you know, like there's laws against having your healthcare provider in the United States be a member of your family and stuff like that. Like those things, the Uncali as a self-running societal unit within a family is beautiful, but also problematic for those reasons as well. Right. Because it's like, if you didn't want to, you're going away from your healthcare provider and you're going away from the person who understands how to, live on this planet and forage for food. Mm -hmm. So even if we didn't have those neurochemical tendencies involved, yeah, it's just the family construct here is both glorious because everyone does seem to love each other so deeply, but also kind of disturbing because being a self-insulated unit to me seems kind of scary because when they leave low... They're sad to leave low, but not necessarily to leave the other members of their village. Like, they're friends with them, but they don't need them. Well, they have mated, like, children and stuff, but yeah, you're right. They don't need them. Yeah, there's an unfair power dynamic, which the novel really doesn't do... It doesn't talk about much, except from the Uncali perspective. And the Uncali perspective is that that power dynamic is just kind of like human perpetrated because humans can't accept being dependent 
and also because we have hierarchical tendencies. But it still feels hierarchical because there is more power. Like, the Oncali do have more power. That was the one of the biggest takeaways for me at the end of this novel, especially in book three with the human Oncali constructs. The mm-hmm. hierarchy can never die. It is within yeah. these new family units that have been built and no one recognizes it, except for maybe the humans, no. but they don't have a way to talk about it. And that, to me, was almost one of the scariest parts of the novel, like the scariest sci-fi part, and sort of the answer to the Mars question. Because it's like, if the hierarchy is still within this society that they're creating that's supposed to be free of it, supposed to be away from all of that, then like, yeah, the humans on Mars really are fucked, you know? But like, there's nothing... I think that part of the message here is that we can't get away from it. We have to learn how to overcome it in ourselves as individuals to again overcome differences overcome prejudices there is i think from this novel's perspective no easy fix to get out of doing that work both as individuals and as society to come together harmoniously yes i will say too to give like some credit to oncali families like it does kind of talk about how there's still a weird power dynamic and we especially see that with the construct like there's there's a weird power dynamic between Jodas uh, versus Jesus and um, Tomas, and it like is weirdly possessive and it sees itself kind of as their protector. But in terms of like, you know, an older family like Nikanj and Lilith and Tino, Tino and Lilith both have land that they garden outside of Lo because Lo is partly Uloi sub, I mean partly like Onkali substance. So they have independent earthland that they garden and they are like, they do go away and then come back and nobody does anything to stop them from doing that. No, Nikanj just learns to deal with it. Yeah. So it's like, it is an acceptance sort of like they are allowed to like have their things that make them independent. And even, um, even Jodas does that in terms of like the fishing because I always like, why aren't you just like helping feed them? Why are they fishing? This doesn't make any sense. Why are you letting them fish? And Jodas is like, well, they're humans. They need this. They need to do their they human things. Feed- yeah. Yeah. They need to feel independent. But at the same time, it's still like they need to feel independent. But at the end of the day, they aren't. They're yeah. <laughs> possessed. True, but I think to be fair, at least in that specific circumstance, it's not like the Onkali are any less possessed, you know? Like, they might have been the initial possessors, but they can't get away as, you know, like, they can't get away either. Yeah, yeah, because they're, like, chemically bonded. It's not like they end up having, they have more power, but I wouldn't necessarily say that they have more independence. And I think their power partially comes from the fact that they are at least at this point in the novel always the instigators of these relationships and a place where i saw hope for the future was at the end of the novel where after aorn and uh jodas and their mates have been back in the human village for a long time and the humans have kind of accepted them as part of their society and then the rest of their own collie family comes they're open to them in a way that makes me hopeful that 
maybe the humans will get to start instigating some relationships, you know, like they're, they're open enough yeah, to they are. that these power dynamics might start to shift and they can all go into it with all of this knowledge and like the future is brighter after it as well. You're right. And I think we do kind of see that because when we're talking, like even Kaya Gott, is that how we pronounce its name? Yep, Kaya yeah. Gott, come Kaya back. <laughs> and isn't a dick this time. Um, but even Kaya Gott, like, speaks on behalf of the humans and also the constructs. And, like, the constructs are physically changing the power dynamic between the older Ankali and themselves. And they're speaking on behalf of the humans. So the more humans you get, who are cooperating with these relationships and who are also instigating this, these relationships are going to have more influence and power. And like Lilith is influencing and changing things. Like she was able to change Nikanj and influence it. So hopefully it will even out the more, the more people. Yeah. <laughs> happen. It reminds me of the initial point we were making before is that this is, generational work to a certain extent yeah. but i will say something else that's important to me about lilith and tino's garden is that it's not just earth that they're keeping for themselves they are actively using it to feed the resistors and still no one stops them yeah that's true well because they the uncali don't want the resistors to die the uncali value life yeah no <laughs> no of course but i but i do think that that's important that if there are an enemy force in this book so to speak which i would argue because the uncali feel like because the uncali don't want to die there isn't but if we were to classify someone as that it would be the resistors so who do truly awful things let's be clear they are very very violent and they are very close-minded from fear which is not a an acceptable reason but it's the reason that we use to justify a lot of the prejudice that we feel that yeah it's the reason why we feel prejudiced yeah. in general. So it's this book is Jesus. very complex in such a nice way. It, it 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 really brought me a lot of joy to pick it apart. Me too. Is there anything else we want to say about this book? I'm trying to see. I think I think as far as I as the things that I wanted to talk about, I I got through all of the big things for me in Imago. What about you? Is there anything we missed? Let me check, but I think that we're... I appreciated how I could read Jodas as sexless, because that wasn't something... It was more difficult for me to do with Nikanj, but I think that was... I, it was less difficult for me to do when Nikanj was a child. It was more difficult when Nikanj was an adult. Anyway, let's see. Nope, that's everything that I wanted. Do you think this is a feminist book? I mean, jump straight in, or like, how many stars do you give it? Let's see the Maggie rating. I honestly would give this a 4.5 overall. There were things that I disliked about it, but they were mostly things that kind of just dated the novel back to when it was written in the late 80s that I think if Butler was alive today in our current political situation and our current level of societal acceptance, probably she would have handled a little bit differently. And frankly, many of those things improved as we've been talking about throughout the trilogy like we were able to see a real arc i just really liked it which surprised me because as much as i expected to like butler in general sci-fi really isn't my thing let's do your rating first and then talk about whether or not it's a feminist trilogy what is your rating of it overall okay i think overall i think i'm gonna do what you did because i like stealing your thing uh 4.5 out of 5 again because of the lack of queer representation even though it did improve 
this is the first time I've read true sci-fi that wasn't like a dystopian novel. Um, (laughs) And I really, really enjoyed it. And it was really accessible to me. I thought that I didn't think Butler necessarily would be more genre-y because I think sometimes, you know, when you have something genre-y, it can feel a little bit less accessible. Um, But I was expecting sci-fi in general to be a little bit more genre-y. And I don't think we even really got that until, like, it didn't feel like that to me until the last book. But every moment of it was really enjoyable. I really enjoyed the pacing. Yeah, I wish there was a little bit more queerness, like we talked about before, given the context of the book. But I really enjoyed the subject matter. And it was very potent to read in January 2020. It gives me anxiety every day (laughs) in this book. But it also gives me hope. <laughs> yeah. Something I would add that we didn't touch on in any of the podcast episodes, but is relevant for readers who are interested in thinking of it. One of the other ways this book is dated is the way in which Butler handles the idea of disability. Um, so if you're sensitive oh, to that yeah. as a reader, just just be aware. It's not necessarily a major part of the book, but there is a level of disabilities being kind of magically cured and things like that. So if that's something that you dislike in in novels, this trilogy probably isn't for you. But if that doesn't bother you or you're willing to be able to kind of read something like that safely, knowing going that's what it's about going into it, I, I do highly recommend it. Yes. I would say that's especially prevalent within the book that we just read, yes, the third even book. though we didn't discuss that. Um, there's also some characterizations of a little person that are really badly stereotypical, like bad jokes and and stuff like that that kind of come across as offensive like real offensive in the way that it's depicted so i think that people should be aware of that too yeah none of this is to say that it made the trilogy i mean any less good for me except for probably by like half a star i just want to put it out there for our readers because sometimes because we're a feminist podcast you know we focus so much on feminist topics that we don't talk about other forms of accessibility all the time so for yeah. this one, I just wanted to put out some some content warnings for people to to just be aware of and to know that we are also aware of those other shortcomings in the novel as well. Ultimately, though, yeah. do you think that this trilogy is feminist? I don't know. It's just such a different read for me that it's really hard for me to analyze. I think yes, because it's so integrally about gender and sex, but... I don't know. I was editing our last episode today, as I do, you know, and I called the last story we read, I Am a Knife, Not Feminist. And as I was listening, I was like, oh, no, maybe I Am a Knife is feminist for all of these reasons. Like, we're looking from a female perspective, first of all, which was not true of the other difficult woman stories that we read on the podcast. So I I just don't even know what my definition is anymore. I think if I'm going by that old definition in which I said I am a knife was not feminist, then maybe not for the entire story. But I think that the fact that it is so integrally about gender and sex really, it does, it, it has to put it in like the feminist canon, right? Like the feminist canon as we see it today anyway, where it's not, just about women it's about you know people of all genders and just gender equality yeah i think that i agree with you and i think that when i answer this question sometimes the reason that we disagree is because that that's the lens i always try and take on it i think partially because i read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy and a lot of sci-fi and fantasy does fall into more of this sort of feminism if that makes sense we're like 
I think that um, Lilith, the the first novel in this series, is unarguably feminist. Like it is one hundred percent a feminist book. But yeah, but the other two novels blow open the conversations to be larger than about just cisgendered women, I think. And I think mm-hmm. that just because the conversation expands beyond them doesn't make them less feminist. We just have to think about it from more from more of a, I guess, like inclusive, you know, how do all genders deal with issues of power and coercion and where do the especially male characters in this novel misuse them and how are we able to kind of see people overcome or not overcome and why what are the societal circumstances that allow that to happen that for me I think does put the trilogy entirely in a feminist Mm -hmm. world but I think that if you're really looking for just like a truly feminist sci-fi read you're not sure if you want to commit to three books start with Lilith definitely they're short too so just start with that one and see where you're see where you're going yeah I agree I think that this is the first book that we've read that focuses so entirely on gender and sexuality versus every other book that we've read so this might in that way be the most feminist yeah that's true because we haven't read anything that's entirely just like this is about gender yeah that's true this is the first book that we've read where it's a fictionalized world for sure I mean obviously it's sci-fi but clearly Butler's point was to talk about gender and sex and power yeah yeah it's it's incredible. Everyone should read it. It's great. <laughs> it's really, really good. Yeah. Okay. Um, what are you reading, Harmony? <laughs> what am I reading? Okay. I started. Are you ready for it? A Discovery of Witches? Is that what it's called? Yeah, by Deborah yes. Harkness. Yes. And I'm audiobooking it because I can't find it at my local library. Oh. <laughs> I finished Catherine Arden's uh, The Girl in the Tower, and now I'm just like audiobooking this book, and it's like 24 hours long. So I'm like, you know, over halfway through um, because I started the show first, and you know, that's kind of like a sin. So now I had to, I had to get through it. There's a lot of drinking of wine and being pretentious. Yeah. It's like half the book, but I kind of dig it. It's like Twilight, except more pretentious. Yeah, and maybe definitely for adults. Uh, I think it is a little bit smarter because at the very least, all of the stuff that's about medieval texts and stuff, Deborah Harkness, before yeah. she wrote novels, like that was what her PhD is in. So that's what I... Okay. All of that's really <laughs> accurate. I love that series from an emotional standpoint, but I think that for actual writing and content, it's probably more like a three stars. Having said that, though, I reread it for the third time, the whole trilogy this year. It's just like a happy place. It's one of those worlds that you go into to escape and to a certain extent not think that deeply about, at least for me. So I'm happy that you're reading it and I hope that you enjoy it. I am. I am enjoying it. Um, Yeah, that's it. That's all I'm reading right now because I wanted to finish Imago and now I'm probably going to start that book that you posted on Instagram. The Philosopher's Flight! Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Maggie, what are you reading? I am reading The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates, which I am super excited about and very much enjoying. I really wanted to get it when it came out in October, but I was between jobs at the time, so like it just I, I didn't have the extra cash to get a new hardcover, but things have things have changed and now I have it in my hands. <laughs> 
Um, and I'm also listening still to Obsidio by Jay Kristoff and Amy Kaufman on audiobook, which, holy shit, I'm not usually an audiobook person, and I feel like the entire world has read the Illuminae Files already. I am five years behind the trend. But if you haven't read these three books, I highly recommend getting them, and I highly recommend reading them on audio. They are so good. And they have a full cast, which is part of what the, makes the audiobook so awesome. I will, I do like audiobooks, so I will definitely put that in my... Do you have any homework for this week, Harmony? Oh, what's my homework for this week? Um, deal with difference better? I don't know, man. Oh, you know what it is? Okay, so my partner and I have been bickering a lot because um, I'm messy, <laughs> essentially. And I've had a lot of work to do this week, and you know, have been a little bit messier because of that. So I'm going to, and then I feel like bad because then I bicker at my partner because he's bickering at me for being messy. So then I'm like mad at him for like all of his, you know, perceived faults. So I'm going to work harder to like, you know, accept my loved one's differences and just kind of love him for him because he's a cute little person. Yeah. What about you, Maggie? This is good homework. I'm going to, I'm going to work harder at being left's loves hicks for my husband i felt so weird about reading all of that like physical addiction stuff my husband's away right now because he's in the navy and that's what the navy does um and i've been really missing him lately which is fine but like i think i've been i've been wallowing in it too much you know i'm gonna embrace the independence i have that the characters in this novel don't have (laughs) oh maggie oh that's good. I'm glad you're embracing your independence because we are not slaves to our chemicals, hopefully. Hopefully. I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, next week. <laughs> oh, so we're not here next week, but our next episode is coming out on Friday because it's the Valentine's Day episode. So keep an ear out for that. It's going to be really lighthearted and super funny, especially for us. We're probably going to be a little bit tipsy, not which is episode three, Tipsy. I will never live that down in my entire life. But, oh, so many regrets. But keep an ear out for that. And other than that, we will see you guys in two weeks. Or you will see us. Or you will hear us. Words are difficult. You'll have a blooper app, too. Because I have, like, 127 bloopers right now. (laughs) All of me cussing out my dog. Yeah, actually. (laughs) She's been an asshole recently. All right. Goodbye, friends. Bye. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.